0: the helicopter. What an amazing aircraft. Igor Sikorsky overcame a myriad of physics and aerodynamics problems to make rotary-winged flight a reality. It can land pretty much anywhere, and that could give the pilot a false sense of security. Even with two pilots aboard, assuming that the other guy has certain details of the flight covered can lead to big problems. And it did for the pilots of a Robinson R-44. Fuel and CRM on this episode of I Laughed. I learned about flying from that. Hi everyone, I'm Rob Ryder, and welcome to episode 38 of Flying Magazine's I Learned About Flying From That podcast. It's brought to you by Avemco Aviation Insurance. Today's episode is significant on two levels one that we've touched on before, fuel starvation, and on CRM, crew or cockpit resource management. My guest, Elliot Danner, talks about how he and another pilot were ferrying a Robinson R44 from California to Florida, and how lax CRM and changing weather almost stranded them in the middle of nowhere Texas. Elliot will tell the tale right after this word from a Vemco. Avemco is the only aircraft insurance company that lets you call them directly. In fact, they want you to call them. They love talking about airplanes, and if you've got a squawk with your insurance company, even if it's with Avemco, they want to hear about it. It's that direct, one on one personal contact that sets Avemco apart. Visit Avemco.com slash flying or call them today at 800 338 8705. Say that you and I learned about flying from that listener, and you'll save 5% on your annual premium. Now, I learned about flying from that. Elliot Danner is my guest today on I Laughed, and we've had a couple of uh, discussions with other folks about helicopters. But, Elliot, you've got an R44, and you got a great story for us. Welcome to I Laughed. Thanks very much, Rob. I'm really looking forward to talking with you this is a great day to do this. On a previous episode, John Zimmerman from Sporties talked about an issue he had with a helicopter. And he's a he's a fixed wing guy and a fling wing guy, as are you. But where did it all start for you with your uh, with your love of aviation? Well, you know,
1: it uh, for for a lot of us, I think a lot of people grow up really always wanting to fly. And then some of us just kind of fall into it. So about 14 years ago, uh, almost 15 years ago now, I kind of got it into my head that it would be fun to do something a little bit different. Uh, and I, I had some money at the time and I had, uh, I just sort of life circumstances were right. So I bought myself a, a 1974 Grumman Traveler uh, and endeavored to learn to fly in it uh, and was probably the bane of existence of my CFIs uh, for uh, for a good solid, uh, good solid 10, 11 months. Why do you say that? You know, I say that because I think um, in a lot of ways, aviation was it didn't come naturally to me. And I've been I've been fortunate that a lot of the things that I do come really naturally to me. Uh, And I think, you know, I was in my 20s at the time. I don't think that my my judgment was quite as good uh, as it is now, certainly. And I think I just I never it took me a long time to really respect airplanes, the complexity of flying, kind of the beauty of flying. I went into it with this kind of attitude, well, this will be a quick way to get from point A to point B. And, and in reality, you know, it's, it's cliche to say, but the journey from point A to point B actually is the adventure most of the time in, in general aviation flying.
0: And so you got your license and hung on to the Traveler. Do you still have that airplane? No, I don't.
1: I, I got my license and then uh, immediately bought a Beechcraft Baron, uh, which I flew for a number of years uh, and really, really, really enjoyed um, and then uh, got rid of the Baron and uh, went into a Cirrus, uh, which was an aircraft that I candidly had mixed feelings about, but flew that for a number of years. Uh, and now I'm, I'm back in a Baron.
0: Oh, that's an interesting comment. I've got over 10 hours in an SR-22, and I, I like it. I don't have any Baron time, but explain to me your comment about the mixed feelings.
1: Something that I like about, something that I really enjoy about the Baron is that it it requires a a pretty high degree of sort of fine, it, it requires a high degree of fine motor skills to fly, and it really rewards a pilot for flying it well. And I found that the Cirrus was very tolerant of anything that you did to it, but I never really felt like I was a particularly great pilot, nor a particularly terrible pilot with it.
0: The Beechcraft Baron will remain your first love. Absolutely. I, I I absolutely love Barons. But you decided to extend or expand your aviation career and knowledge and skill and go to a Robinson. Oh, my. I did. You know, in um
1: in about June of last year, uh, I was thinking, you know, it'd be fun to learn to fly something a little bit different. And and I I had a little bit of time with I have some friends with helicopters, had a little bit of time and helicopters. And there's a really good helicopter school uh, right near me here in uh, in the Palm Beach area. Uh, and so I walked in one day and, and signed up for lessons. Um, I don't think I was at all what they were expecting. You know, that's more of a career school. And here I am, you know, not going to take up a career in aviation, uh, at least at least not in the foreseeable future. Uh, and uh, I kind of walked in and said, oh, I just thought it'd be fun to learn to fly helicopters. I kind of got a funny look, but, you know, presumably my money's as green as anybody else's.
0: And they took your money and you learned in a Robinson? I did. I learned in
1: a 44, um, which is a really great helicopter. You know, I I know a lot of people have questions about the Robinsons, but the 44 is just a really fantastic helicopter. And I had so much fun learning to fly. I mean, I think I probably laughed through the entire thing.
0: Is it because you had trouble operating close to the ground and you were (laughs) laughing at yourself or or was it just that much fun? You know, it's a ton of fun, but it's also,
1: you know, I have, you know, 1,400 thereabouts hours, so, you know, more or less 100 hours a year. I feel pretty confident and comfortable flying, and the helicopter was just impossible for me. You know, probably my first five, six hours, I was spinning around like a top and looking like a complete idiot, and, and I just couldn't stop laughing. You know, at one point I asked one of the CFIs, I said, you know, how am I doing? And and he said, well, you're not the best helicopter student I have, but you are having the most fun. <laughs> and uh, and that was absolutely true. And and it, it really, I mean, I enjoyed every single minute of, of learning to fly helicopters and I've enjoyed every single minute of flying
0: helicopters. Do you consider yourself more a master of it now than you were? Obviously, you've improved your skills, but do you, are you one with that helicopter? You know, I'm to the point, Rob,
1: where I feel comfortable and uh, relaxed flying the helicopter. But and then I've got, you know, at this point, about 100 and well, probably about 120, 130 hours flying them. Um, but it's definitely something that that mastery is is uh, is far off from me. It's going to take a long time.
0: Well, let's talk about the situation that you had with this R44. Yeah. Was this the trip you went, was this particular R44 the one you h- had your eye laughed moment in when you went to get that helicopter when you bought it?
1: So so the one that I learned in wasn't. And actually, I was having so much fun learning, and I started looking at the economics of it. And I thought, well, I just have to have one of these things. Uh, so I started, as I was getting my my license in the helicopter, I started looking for one to buy. Uh, and I ultimately identified one uh, in the Long Beach area in California. Um. And, you know, that I didn't really think much of. I, I bought airplanes on the other coast and I've flown coast to coast several times and I didn't really think much of, oh, well, there's going to be this long cross country because yeah, I'm still sort of a little bit in airplane guy mode. And, and you know, it's not it, airplanes cross country. It's not 500 feet, you know, in the weather, you know, with the wind and all that kind of stuff. So I, uh, I, I probably underestimated the the trip that I was going to take.
0: Well, let's talk about it, because you didn't do it alone. and I didn't. And you were going to have what would normally be prevailing winds from the West that, were, that I'm sure you assumed were going to help you uh, get home a little more quickly. But take us to that day, and when was yeah. it that you were out in Long Beach and you and your buddy climbed into this R44 and started back to Florida with it?
1: Yeah, so I so I decided that uh, it would make sense to take someone with a lot more helicopter experience uh, than I have. So I, I've got a friend who's got a lot of experience in helicopters, and and so he and I agreed we were going to go we were going to go pick up this helicopter. So we got to Long Beach. Uh, you know, we walked around the helicopter. It looked as described. Actually, looked better than as described. Better than the pictures. Mechanicals were uh, as as I was informed during the pre buy. And uh, so the first thing that we did, uh, very confidently. Was uh, start up the helicopter and uh, take off into the Los Angeles Basin, um, assuming that we were going to follow Interstate 10. And uh, I dramatically underestimated, uh, dramatically overestimated my ability to identify Interstate 10 from the air. Uh, so we got some help from some controllers to find oh Interstate goodness. 10, uh, and we and we took off following Interstate 10 uh, for the first day, uh, and we got to, uh, Arizona on the first day. Uh, and then, uh, the eye laugh moment happened on the second day.
0: Tell us about it.
1: So this was our second flight of the day. Uh, so our first flight had been sort of through Arizona. And you know, I was mentioning earlier, there's kind of that moment with a new airplane or a new helicopter, or new anything that you fly, that you kind of become comfortable with it. And I actually had that moment on the flight before our I laugh moment. I, it was kind of the time when I realized I can put music on in this. I feel pretty comfortable. We were having a good time. We were talking back and forth. Pictures were great. We got a, a nice tour right over the boneyard at Davis Monthan, um, and landed at Deming, uh, where we got some fuel. Uh, and we, uh, the FBO uh introduced us to their pet rattlesnakes, which was something new and
0: different. No, wait, 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 wait. Uh, pet rattlesnakes at an FBO? That's a new pet one. Pet rattlesnakes. So so Delta Mike November, Deming, New
1: Mexico. Uh they they have got two pet rattlesnakes, uh, which the proprietor uh informed us very confidently that he had rescued. Uh, so I, I can say, if anyone ever asks, that I've, I've met the most unusual rescue animal. It's a rescue – well, actually two – rescue rattlesnakes. And they, they live in, believe it or not, one of those glass jewelry cases, you know, like the kind you see it where they put watches in and stuff. They live in these
0: right at the counter at the, uh, at the Deming Municipal Airport. You, can you hear it? Do they get a, a upset and rattle when you're there filling out your uh, – p- dropping the credit well, card to pay for the gas? You know, it's funnier than that. They didn't rattle. I put
1: my credit card down in my wallet, and my credit card down on this thing and then looked down and saw the rattlesnakes.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Which um, I've seen some unusual things in FBOs and I've seen some unusual FBO pets, including a couple parrots. But uh, rattlesnakes are
0: a new one. OK, well, you got past the rattlesnakes and then you took off. And then what happened? So our plan was to go from Delta Mike November to Echo
1: Zero One, which is Monahans, Texas. This is West Texas. And that, if you follow Interstate 10, is a distance of about 270 miles. R44 has got, with with reserves of 300 plus mile range uh, and, you know, about three and a half hours of flying. We had sort of calculated that this was going to be about a two and a half hour uh, leg. So well within... Uh, well within the fuel reserves, and so on. So we took off out of Monaghan, or out of uh, Deming, rather, headed for Monaghan's. And that took us down along the uh, U.S.-Mexico border through El Paso. Uh, And we were making good time. We'd we'd actually planned, you know, when I I do my cross-country plans, Rob, one of the things I always do is make sure that I have sort of a a three-quarters of the way divert point. Uh, and so I had actually planned a divert point at a, an airport called Cuthbertson Culbertson, uh, which is Victor Hotel November. It's right along that route. Um, and we were making pretty good time at this point. We we were maybe an hour and maybe an hour and 15, maybe an hour and 20 minutes into the flight. And we looked down and, and there's uh, Culbertson. And sitting on the ramp at Culbertson is a Chinook. A CH-47 Army Heavy Metal. But this is a big helicopter, and, and I have a friend who flies Chinooks, and I thought, God, wouldn't it be funny to take a picture of this little blue Robinson next to that Chinook and text it to her? And and I said this to my friend, and and we laughed about it. Uh, and then we kind of looked at, at the fuel and the ground speed and thought, well, no, we can go another. You know, at that point, it's, it's really only another 80 or 90 miles, uh, and everything was looking pretty good. So we said, well, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll miss the Chinook on this trip. Maybe next time we bring a helicopter across the country, we'll stop and see a Chinook. Uh, and so we continued along Interstate 10. What changed? This is an area where the terrain starts to change. So if you've ever flown across the southern route, you know the terrain changes are, are one of the best parts of, of a trip like that. But we got into some, some valleys that Interstate 10 uh, runs through. And there were relatively high winds, not as forecasted winds. So in the R44, you know, when, when you get into winds, you want to reduce your speed to around about 60 knots. Uh, and so we found ourselves dealing with mechanical effect turbulence off of the sort of off of the two ridges that in the helicopter are above us, right? So we're sort of getting pounded from both sides with turbulence. And then we suddenly developed a pretty significant headwind. And, you know, Rob, as I'm sure you know, there's this cliche in aviation where, you know, someone says, well, I was looking down and and the cars were passing me. Oh, Oh. I've I've heard I've heard that before, but it never happened to me uh, until this trip when I when I looked down uh, and I remember looking at one particular semi truck and thinking that semi truck is probably going 20 miles an hour faster than we are.
0: Yeah, I have been there when I was a student pilot. I was on in a 152 looking at Interstate 71, watching cars pass me and trucks pass me. And that was the last time I ever flew in a 152. So I'm with you on that. Well, let me ask your normal speed, though on the R44 your 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 normal indicated airspeed what 100 knots or something like that yeah 100 that? this you know this one's got doors and it's a it's a Robinson 2 so you know
1: 100 110 and that had been about what we were doing uh for the trip to date I mean we had been we'd been really close to to book speeds uh and actually a little bit under book fuel burn um so you know even right. as we slowed
0: down i i wasn't really thinking about it was that phrase that you just used not really thinking about it critical to what continued to happen to you and your buddy oh i
1: think i i, I think uh, i think all i laughed moments and and let's let's be honest with ourselves we've all had more than any than the ones that we talk about <laughs> i think all of them begin with i wasn't really thinking about x so i wasn't really thinking about fuel and and my friend wasn't either uh and so now i think it's it's important to point something out um my friend has a lot of helicopter time, no fixed wing time, and because of the amount of helicopter time he has, he doesn't have a tremendous amount of cross country time because if you think about helicopters, really they go point A to point B and return to point A. There's you don't generally take them on very long trips. Whereas I have almost all of my flying is serious cross country flying. Uh and so what had kind of happened over the course of this trip was I had kind of taken responsibility for you know, the cross-country part, the ATC part, the planning part, the terrain, all that kind of stuff. And I had sort of seeded, and we never really talked about this, uh, I had sort of seeded the part about the helicopter. You know, so the uh, the fuel burn and the speeds and that kind of stuff, I, I just kind of seeded to him because that's kind of his area of expertise. I think I think all cockpits get into that at some point.
0: Well, that's so. When you say cockpit, that's that's a situation we're into now that goes beyond just flying a helicopter and paying attention to the fuel. Sure, it's crew or cockpit resource management. Exactly, and and I think you know one
1: of them. We'll get to the lessons, obviously, but one of the lessons here is the importance of having a conversation about who's going to have what responsibility on any given flight.
0: So then things uh, got, but things got. A little tougher for you because if you're watching guys pass you on the interstate who are probably on Interstate 10 going 70 or 75 miles an hour, and you would normally be going a uh, hundred miles an hour, 115 miles an hour uh, in the air, that means there's a huge differential. So the 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 headwinds must have been massive, very very significant between very very significant between
1: the. Uh, between the turbulence and the headwinds, it was it was a difficult trip. Um, and as we're going along, we got really quiet. And that was odd because we had talked back and forth for the entire trip. Uh, and I, I've flown with him a fair bit. We talked nonstop. Uh, but we got really quiet. And we got really quiet for a good probably 20 minutes there. And I don't remember which one of us said it first. I think it may have been me. I said, so I'm looking at the fuel gauges. And he immediately said, yeah. Uh Uh-oh. And that was the moment where we looked down and, and just realized, oh, we have less fuel in this helicopter than we thought we did. Uh, and we probably have significantly less fuel, and you know some of that was getting bounced around in the turbulence. Some of that was the winds, but you know we're we're going to need to find gas.
0: Let me ask another question here, because if sure. you're looking at the fuel gauges, if they're anything like the fuel gauges in in many fixed wing airplanes in turbulence, you can't tell where those needles are. And I think I honestly think
1: that contributed a little bit to it. They were sort of bouncing around a little bit, um, but. By the time we by the time we sort of had that oh let's look at this moment we were back into smooth air which was good news, so I start dialing into the 4:30 in that aircraft I start dialing in nearest and I got my iPad and my other iPad because it's you know modern cockpit got to have two iPads and an iPhone, <laughs> uh, I've got all this hooked up and I, I'm looking for a place and I find uh, Pecos Texas, uh, which is Papa Echo Quebec. Uh, and we at that time were about thirty-five miles, so about halfway really uh between our divert point and, and Pecos. I find Pecos, which is you know gonna cut some time off, and I say we're going direct to Pecos. So what happens here the there's a thing that I didn't think about, and I, I don't think either of us thought about when we punched in direct Pecos and, and turned the HSI and took off, which was now we're off of Interstate 10 and, and where it joins Interstate 20, and we're over Texas shrub. Uh and there is nothing. You know, we're we're probably only two miles from the highway, but at 500 feet over terrain like that, you can't see the highway. Two miles away, there is. You know, there's a lot of places you could land, but I start thinking. You know, if we land here with no fuel, how are we going to get one? How are we going to get fuel? Two, how are we going to get anywhere? Uh, because there's no cell
0: service. There's no, you know, there, there's there's nothing out there. So your direct divert puts you in a more precarious position than it would have been had you run out of gas and landed in the median of the interstate. In in a lot of ways, yes. In a lot of ways, yes. So wow. we're
1: we're running across the desert as as fast as we can here. And I'm thinking, where's my my little Garmin inReach? You know, what happens if we have to put this thing down? And we were about eight miles from Pecos, thereabouts, uh, and the low fuel light went on. That's dangerous. And you're never supposed to see the low, I mean, not supposed to see the low fuel light in anything, but you're not supposed to see the low fuel light uh, in a helicopter.
0: Especially in a Robinson, as I'm told by other folks. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the book says you've got 10 minutes of fuel remaining.
1: Um, we so we had maybe three minutes of flying from there until we were at Pecos. We got to Pecos. We bring it down uh, onto the runway. My friend was flying at this point because uh, we decided an auto was more likely. Positive outcome was more likely with a guy with more experience. Uh, We brought it down onto the runway and we uh, we hover taxied it as quick as we could, expecting it to quit at any moment, uh, right up to the fuel. Uh, And we shut it down. And when I tell you I breathed a sigh of relief, and so did he, I mean, there was there was a moment of, oh, thank God that's over.
0: You dodged the bullet, obviously. did How long did it take you to get out of the airplane? Because I've talked to others. And one of our previous, uh, Peter Rito on a previous episode talked about how, and when he landed his airplane after a significant event, he sat there and just sort of shivered and shuddered for about 30 minutes before he even got out of the airplane.
1: It probably took us a good 10 minutes to, to get out of the helicopter at that point. um and and I remember I actually remember my hands were shaking a little bit uh as, as I pulled my wallet out to to pay for fuel um so the the R44 Raven 2 with the with the fuel bladders uh which is the way mine's configured has about 46 gallons usable in it and I found the receipt uh actually yesterday when I was preparing for this I put 39.6 gallons of fuel uh into that helicopter Gracious. That probably means the low fuel light came on a hair early. We probably did have a little more time, but nowhere near the safety margin that uh, that I would hold myself accountable to as a pilot.
0: Let's take a break right now, Elliot. Come back. We'll talk about the lessons because this is loaded with good lessons for all of us. We'll be right back. Avco insured their first plane in 1961. Ironically, that same Cessna 172 became Avemco's first claim. That's what started them on a mission to improve pilot safety. They even reward safe pilots with reduced premiums. You'll save 5% just for caring enough about safety to be an I learned about flying from that listener. Visit avemco.com slash flying or call 800-338-8705 and ask an Avemco Aviation Insurance Specialist how you can save with the Avemco Safety Rewards Program. Now, back to iLab. Elliot Danner, we are back. We've got some lessons to learn from you based on what you and your buddy encountered and faced and dealt with on that cross-country, which obviously ended well, but that going into Pecos had your had you on the edge of your seats tell us what you learned about flying from that it did you know there's there's two things that I learned um and and
1: I'm embarrassed to say one of them I already knew so the the first thing that I learned and and why I think you know why I've really given a lot of thought to this uh is I learned that we had sort of as I mentioned earlier delegated responsibilities to each other and we had done it without ever talking about it Right? So I learned that anytime I'm going to fly with somebody, I want to be very clear on what they're responsible for. And sometimes those responsibilities go beyond your piloting command, I'm doing the radios. right? Sometimes the responsibilities go into, I'm the more experienced multi-engine pilot, therefore I am responsible for engine management on this flight. You might be responsible for flying or something like that. And I think, you know, in this case, as I said, we'd, we kind of silently delegated to each other the thing that we had more experience with. And doing that caused us not to be cross-checking each other. So that was that was sort of the first part of that lesson. And the second part of that lesson was that an effective cockpit, professional cockpit, general aviation cockpit, whatever it is, is a cockpit where you're talking about things all the time. And that moment where we got quiet, and we both were obviously thinking the same thing. That moment where we got quiet is a really good example of what can happen when you stop talking about things. So a thing that I took away from that was that I need to be clear with anyone that I'm flying with, what they're doing and what I'm doing. And then we need to be cross-checking each other actively during the flight. You know, no one's a passive
0: participant in a general aviation cockpit. And that was lesson number one. Go for lesson number two. Lesson number two is a lesson I had already
1: learned, and that's never, ever, ever get near being low on fuel. And I'll tell you why I learned that lesson. Uh, when I was doing my private pilot, uh, I had convinced—I mentioned I was a little bit of a little bit of a terror at the flight school. I had convinced my instructor to let me fly from uh, Leesburg Executive in Virginia, Juliet Yankee Oscar. To an airport uh, just east of Lexington, Kentucky, uh, Indy Oscar Bravo, which is about a 300 nautical mile solo student cross country, which is over West Virginia. It's a little bit aggressive. Um, And on that flight, on that flight, I had I had uh, I'd taken off. I'd done all of the planning. You know, the traveler holds 37 gallons worth of gas, a number I will not soon forget. And it burns about eight gallons an hour. So the book says it's a 600-mile airplane with with 4 or 5 hours of fuel. This was a 3-hour trip, um, but something happened on this flight that I uh that I never would have been able to pre- uh, never would have been able to predict, what was which that? Which was the mixture cable broke. So I very confidently thought that I was leaning the airplane, moving the mixture cable in and out. But what had actually happened was behind the panel, the mixture cable had broken. The little spring had triggered it to go full rich. And rather than burning the eight gallons an hour it's supposed to burn, it was burning a
0: lot more. You were then totally misled. Did you, when you were leaning it, did you go for peak EGT as part of your leaning process? Or did you just trust the number of turns on the, on the mixture control that you were going to get the proper leaning? Did you make a mistake in that? I made a mistake in that, and that, that uh, aircraft was not well enough instrumented
1: to really tell. So I just trusted the number of turns that I thought I was supposed to make. It's one of the reasons no, air, no aircraft I have now doesn't have a totalizer. Um, but I uh, I got on the ground at Indio Bravo. I pulled the mixture out and the thing came off in my hand. Uh, I've got it actually on, on the desk behind me here because I think it's, uh, it's a good
0: reminder. Goodness, how did we you get put, the engine stopped?
1: Uh, oh, the mags. <laughs> although, oh, although, gosh. and this is why I say I already learned this lesson, uh, it turns out it probably would have stopped on its own. Um, so that's a 37 gallon airplane. like I said that's not a number I'll forget. I also won't forget the number 34, which is the number of gallons we put into that airplane.
0: So you were into your unusable fuel there. but we were very, very
1: close. I think 37 might be the, the usable amount. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I don't remember I don't remember the details that well, but it was very close. And I swore when that happened, I this was actually a major moment in, in, in my development as a pilot, I swore I would never, ever, ever be close to a fuel
0: situation ever again. And
1: and right up until uh, that trip last year in the R44, uh, I've never been.
0: You made a comment about getting three-quarters of the way and having an out at three-quarters. John and Martha King talk about a similar point, but they equate it to more than about half the distance on your trip to get fuel. So you're never going to get in that problem. So you have learned your lesson now. Uh, let me ask just briefly, on that traveler incident, How did, did you have somebody at that airport fix the mixture control so you could fly it back? I did. I did.
1: I I had one. uh, I had a mixture cable express shipped to me and I had a mechanic on the field install it. uh, And and they all thought that it was pretty funny that the student pilot had had shown up and almost run out of gas. Um, Suffice to say, I did not think it was nearly as entertaining as they did.
0: I can only agree with you. This has been so interesting. I really appreciate your willingness to share the mistakes and the lessons you learned. Thanks, Elliot Danner for being on I Laughed.
1: Thanks, Rob. I'm really a big fan of what you're doing.
0: As I initially read Elliot Danner's email submission to me, I thought that fuel starvation was going to be the main issue of the episode, but CRM became the focus of the story. If you've got an I Laughed story that you'd be open to sharing on the podcast, I want to hear from you. Shoot me an email with a synopsis of your story and we'll take a look at it. My email address is rob at flying.media. Rob at flying.media. Thanks to every one of you who subscribed to iLaft. There are more and more each time we drop an episode, and it's so gratifying that they're having a positive impact. Tell your friends, too. They can find iLaft wherever they get their podcasts. You can follow Flying Magazine on Facebook or Instagram, where we'll post new episodes every couple of weeks so that everyone can hear the first-hand accounts of the flying lessons that sometimes only experience can teach. Lisa DeFreeze is the executive producer of ILAft. Julie Boatman is editor-in-chief of Flying Magazine for Avemco Aviation Insurance and Flying Magazine, fueling the passion for flight since 1927. I'm Rob Ryder. Catch you next time on. I learned about flying from that